very helpful, I think, just to keep that Bible passage open in front of you. I think it's uh, page 927 in the Bibles under your chairs. Do, do keep that open. And there should be a sort of a mint-colored sheet which should give you a steer on where I'm going and it'll give you some idea of, uh, of what I'm going to say. But before we, uh, before we dive in, shall I lead us in prayer? Let's just take a moment. Father, we've just prayed that you would consume our dross and refine us like gold. And I guess that's a dangerous prayer to pray, but I guess that is our prayer. Father, please show us ourselves in this text, and more importantly, show us our Saviour. Would our hearts and our minds and our imaginations be gripped by the Lord Jesus Christ? And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I have quite fond memories uh, of my school growing up. And there was a particular guy in my class at school whose parents would always buy him the top quality sports equipment for whatever sport it was. So I vividly remember uh, in the cricket season, um, we rest of us had to go out to bat in these moth-eaten cricket pads with these dead cricket bats, and they were hopeless. And out would stride my friend in gleaming white, these brand new pads. He'd have a helmet at the age of 10, and uh, this, what I swear is a 500-pound cricket bat. And there he is at the crease. But to our delight, he was rubbish. And uh, we delighted in watching this guy, game after game, get bowled out first ball. He was terrible at cricket. And so we used to say, say of him, he has all the gear, but no idea. All the gear, but no idea. And perhaps you have a friend who similarly does the same. Maybe they've blown a load of money on a new set of golf clubs, thinking it would drastically improve the game, but you play with them and they're hacking the ball across the fairway. Or maybe you've got a friend who shells out thousands and thousands of pounds with this posh camera, and they always keep it on that green automatic setting to their shame. At first sight, I guess that's most of us, isn't it? At first sight, I guess these people can look quite impressive, can't they, with their kit? But look again, and they're a figure of ridicule. All the gear, but no idea. Well, if you like, Jonah is the prophet with all the gear, but no idea. And we saw last week how he possesses all of this really sound theology, but he always acts in direct opposition to it. He lets out these fantastically impressive statements of belief. And yet, for us, the reader, he's a figure of ridicule. And really, that's the purpose of this book. It's a satire. It's a comedy with with a point. So when this story would have been told around the campfires of Israel, and it would have been a firm favourite, no doubt, the hearers would have roared with laughter at Jonah's hypocrisy. And his behaviour, it's intended to expose something about us. If you like, that this book is a black mirror. By laughing at Jonah, actually we're laughing at ourselves. It's showing us what we're really like. And so uh, tonight, what I hope we'll do is just uh, sit back and enjoy uh, chapter two of the story. We began chapter one last week. Uh, I hope we'll, we'll enjoy it. But, but at the end, if you're, if you're able to bear with me that long, at the very end, we'll, we'll draw some thoughts together to show us how this passage actually is really for us too. But as you can see on your handouts, our, our passage begins with a rather shocking death. Here, the great prophet of God is dumped 
unceremoniously into the choppy, choppy, dark waters. And then a giant sea creature comes and swallows him whole. What on earth is going on? Well, if you weren't here last week, I I kind of uh, need to sort of do a recap. So if you were here last week, please bear with me as I try and get us all up to speed. Chapter one we saw is full of shocks. Here, uh, Jonah is told in verse two to go and preach against Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was 500 miles in that direction in Assyria. What does Jonah do? He heads in that direction, 2,500 miles, all the way to Tarshish, which is in Spain. Why does he run in the opposite direction? Why does he get a boat all the way to Tarshish? Because he doesn't want to risk God's mercy being extended to the enemy, the Ninevites. And this flagrant disobedience, it it rightly rouses God's anger. And the Lord, he sends this almighty storm to to pound the the little ship that Jonah's in. And all these pagan sailors uh, are desperately trying to work out what to do to save themselves. And at first, it's quite funny, Jonah does absolutely nothing to help them. They're there scrambling on deck, and what does Jonah do? Well, he goes downstairs and falls asleep. Uh, They're there desperately praying to their gods and they find Jonah. They urge him to pray, but Jonah keeps his mouth shut. And finally, the the sailors, they back the prophet into a corner and force him to say something. And then finally, in verse 9, he sort of regurgitates a load of pious theology. He says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Why are you running from him then? Jonah has all the gear but no idea. So by the very end of chapter one, the usual roles are entirely reversed. At the sailors and not Jonah, the sailors repent and turn from their idols. It's the sailors, not Jonah, who, who open their mouths in prayer to the Lord. It's the sailors, not Jonah, who are told, we are told greatly fear the Lord. And here, friends, here's the ultimate irony. It's the sailors who end up saved from the storm of God's wrath. Whereas Israel's prophet is entirely consumed by it. Much to the the delight of the children around the campfire when plop in goes the prophet. This is a shocking death. That's where we left it last week. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Look down at verse 17. What, what, What happens next? Follow with me. Verse 17. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. This week I was having lunch with someone from the morning congregation. And we were talking about this, this fish. Sort of a, it's quite a good conversation topic I found. And we're wondering, is, is this giant sea monster, is it supposed to be a good thing? Or is it supposed to be a bad thing? Is this fish a, a God's salvation? Or is it his judgment? Because it's slightly ambiguous, isn't it? It's it's hard to work out. Well, imagine if if you were Jonah. Imagine you were there. You've just been thrown overboard in the midst of this dark storm. The clouds overhead, the lightning flashing, the water's tumultuous. And as you sink down, down, down into the black waters, suddenly you look down and coming up below you is this enormous gaping mouth. Now at that moment... I doubt you'll be thinking, hooray, I'm rescued. No, you'll be thinking, ah, 
you'd be terrified, wouldn't you? You'd be absolutely terrified. And, and this verb, swallow, it, it kind of conveys just that. It, it, it's never used positively in, in the Old Testament. Just like the ground swallowed up Korah at his rebellion. Well, so now Jonah here, he finds himself in the belly of this fish, or later, as he says in, in his prayer, the belly of the grave. And that phrase, three days and three nights, it's not an entirely positive phrase either. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe someone going down to death and then coming up again. It's a round trip to the underworld, if you like. So this giant fish, it represents death, the grave, the underworld. Which, having read chapter 1... You kind of have to agree that that's kind of what Jonah deserves, isn't it? And yet notice that detail in verse 17. It is the Lord who provided that fish. God's means of judgment is also his means of redemption. Friends, the shock here is not that a sea creature can come and swallow a man and keep him alive. And we could waste loads of time after the service talking about the events where in, you know, people have been swallowed by whales and they'd be found alive days later. We could waste a lot of time talking about that. The shock here is not the fish. The shock here is that God hasn't given up on Jonah. Which is good news for us. Because it gives us hope that he won't give up on us. We'll think about that later. But we move from a shocking death now to a rather shady prayer. Follow with me in verse 1, if you would. Verse 1 of chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave or the belly of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. At which point, you can imagine around the campfire, everyone bursting into applause. Hooray! Finally, Jonah opens his mouth to pray. Finally, Israel's prophet starts acting like a goodie and not the baddie, as he has been in chapter 1. And yet, and yet, there's more to this prayer than meets the eye. In my study upstairs, I've got two big piles of books on, on my desk. One pile of books, mainly, mainly the older ones, they argue that this chapter is an earnest prayer of repentance. They say we're to take it at face value and from it derive our own prayers when we're in times of distress. That's what one pile says. The other pile of books, they delight in pointing out Jonah's continuing hypocrisy in this prayer. They say it's full of glaring omissions and they say, well, if this is his repentance, well, he then seems to unrepent in chapters 3 and 4. So what should we do? Two very contrasting positions. Should we sort of flip a coin and, and see what happens? Well, I reckon, I reckon there's a great deal we can learn here from what Jonah gets right in this prayer. But also, I think there's a great deal we can learn from what Jonah gets wrong in this prayer. So on your sheets, I've got a little table. You might enjoy sort of filling it in as I go along. But uh, there are some things Jonah gets right and some things he gets wrong. Here's the first thing he gets right, is that he emphasises God's judgment. So follow with me again from verse 3, if you would. Verse 3. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, 
and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. The poetry here. It kind of captures something of the chaos of the seas. Whilst it was the sailors who threw Jonah in, here Jonah reflects that actually it was God who hurled him into the deep. Whilst he was churned over by those waves and flipped upside down by all those currents, he who reflects they were only doing so because they were God's waves, God's currents. And whilst he was sinking down to the depths, as he was feeling imprisoned, in the grave, in shale. Here he reflects, this is only because he's been cast out of God's sight. Friends, this is a scary place to be, cast out of God's sight. Instead of light and order and life, Jonah describes here a place of darkness and chaos and death. He feels barred in forever. This is not a place you want to be in. Jonah rightly emphasises God's judgement upon him. But across the column, there's a bit of a glaring omission in this prayer. Maybe you noticed it. It's quite weird that he never once acknowledges his own guilt. At no time in this prayer does Jonah put up his hands and come clean about all the things he did wrong in chapter 1. And not once does he confess the sin that actually put him in this position. And you think that's a pretty big omission, don't you think, in a prayer like this? And we'll circle back around to that thought later on. But the second thing Jonah does do right is that he emphasises God's salvation. So did you notice that here in the midst of the gloom, he lets out this this sound of hope. In verse 4, even though he's been banished from God's sight... Somehow he knows that, again, he's going to enjoy God's presence again. He's going to return to the temple in Jerusalem once again. And that thought, it kind of continues as we read on. So let's go back to verse 5 and read from there again. Verse 5. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. So Jonah saw that that God was the agent of judgment, sinking him down into the depths. But he also seems to recognise that God is the agent of salvation also, bringing him up from the pit. So as you can imagine that the moment when Jonah's lungs were filling up with water, the burn of suffocation in his chest, that moment when his heartbeat just begins to flatline, just when his life is ebbing away, at that moment, at that moment he cried out to the Lord. He remembered his covenant God and his prayer was heard. I think Jonah rightly emphasises God's role in salvation. 
But across the column, it's quite strange that he seems to put just as much emphasis on himself and what he does. It's quite common, isn't it, when we retell events, maybe you had a disagreement with someone at work and then you come home and tell someone, maybe a flatmate or your spouse. We always retell stories, don't we, in a way which kind of presents ourselves as the victor or the hero of the story. And that's kind of what we see Jonah doing here. Throughout chapter 1, we saw Jonah is repeatedly disobedient, useless, entirely in the wrong. And yet somehow, here in chapter 2, he manages to sort of paint the picture as though he's the hero. He's the one who, in the nick of time, manages to cry out to the Lord. He's the one who, who apparently has an unbreakable attachment to his God. I called out and God answered. I cried out and God listened. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord. One commentator says this, the one praying in this prayer is more prominent than the actual deliverer. The one praying for deliverance is more prominent than the actual deliverer. His perception on things is warped, isn't it? But the third thing Jonah does right is he emphasises the danger of idolatry. So he declares down in verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Jonah clearly has in mind those pagan sailors from chapter 1 crying out to their pathetic wooden idols in the midst of that storm. And Jonah rightly castigates that sort of behaviour as utterly worthless. It's a waste of time. Compared to the steadfast love of God, why would you choose the idols, Jonah asks. But of course, whilst Jonah's right to emphasise the danger of idolatry, it's weird that he seems to be entirely blind to his own idolatry. And this is the big point from last week, wasn't it? Who's the idolater at the end of last week's passage? Well, it's not the sailors. that They abandon their idols and turn to the Lord. Who's the idolater? Jonah. Jonah's the idolater. He, he, he's the one who puts his nation's interests before his God. He's the one who, who weighs around his Hebrew identity like a get-out-of-jail-free card. He's the one who thinks grace is for him, but not the nations. Well, the last thing Jonah gets right is that he emphasises the need for loyalty to God. So he finishes his prayer in verse 9. But I, I with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Callum used Psalm 50 earlier, didn't he, in in our confession. And uh, Jonah, he sort of steals a lot of the language from that prayer and sort of squishes it into these these verses here. Uh, Jonah knows, with all his sort of theological knowledge, he knows what marks out a true worshipper. He knows a true worshipper would offer songs of thanksgiving, He knows a true worshiper would offer sacrifices. He knows they would make vows of obedience. He knows those are the right things to do. But around the campfire, when these words would have been shared, the children would start giggling under their mouths, under their hands. Because who is it at the end of chapter one who offers sacrifices and and makes prayers? Who, Who is it again? Was it Jonah? No. It was the sailors who did that. 
It seems Jonah's completely misunderstood Psalm 50. He talks the talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. He has all the gear, but no idea. So putting all of that together, Jonah presents himself as the heroic, faithful believer, and he tars those pagan sailors as dead losses. When in fact, of course, the reverse is true. The sailors are the faithful believers, and Jonah is the dead loss. And yet, he receives grace. And so, very briefly, our final point. Jonah is given a shameful resurrection. Shameful resurrection. Jonah, he's gone right down into death, hasn't he? He's gone right down into death, and he's come right back up again. And having been curled up in this fish for three days, having prayed such a beautiful, eloquent prayer, you can imagine now Jonah bursting out of this creature victoriously, ready to crack on with his mission. But it seems God has other ideas. Look at verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. It seems Jonah's self-righteousness proves so nauseating to God. His, his, His hypocrisy leaves such a foul taste in God's mouth that the fish is commanded to vomit Jonah up onto this beach, much to the delight of the children around the campfire. It would have been a firm favourite of the story, wouldn't it? it? And for there, we're going to leave him, if that's okay with you. Jonah's alive. He's back from the dead, if you like. He's definitely in need of a shower. And he appears, he appears to be heading towards Nineveh in obedience. But has he really repented? Has Has he really changed? Well, we're going to find out next week. But before I sit down, we've, uh, we've got to take some time to think about us. This, remember, this is a satire, it's a comedy with a point. We need to work out, as we stare at Jonah and laugh at his stupidity and his hypocrisy, what does this tell us about us? I've got uh, three ideas. You can probably think about this uh, in, your, in your small groups on, uh, this week. But um, here's three ideas on your, on your sheets. Firstly, we must beware hypocrisy. We must beware hypocrisy. The more I think about this book, the more I think that Jonah's kind of like the Old Testament Pharisee. he's, He's got all this great theology, but he uses it to justify himself and then push others down. He's got all the gear, but no idea. And friends, I think churches like our own must beware doing the exact same thing. Here at St. John's, you know, we put a high premium on Bible teaching, on sound doctrine, and that's a good thing. We want to do that. But the danger is that we use that knowledge to sort of puff ourselves up, justify ourselves. Aren't we sound? And then look down our long noses at those who perhaps don't have such good teaching. I think it's a really ugly thing for Christians to use their theology a bit like a weapon You might have seen it sort of cutting down people who disagree with them instead of trying to build them up and win them round, showing them the goodness and the the light found in Christ. It's an ugly thing, I think, to use theology also to sort of mask our own failings. We can endlessly pick faults, I think, in other people, in their theology and the things they're doing wrong. 
without stopping to consider the giant plank in our own eye. I think Jonah here, he was shown grace by God, not because of all of his theological knowledge and his beautiful and eloquent prayer. He was shown grace so that he might then extend that grace to the Ninevites. And we, having received God's grace, are we going to use that grace to sort of push other people down? Or are we going to use it to bring life and light to people? We must beware hypocrisy. But our second point, I think also we must be baptised into a greater Jonah. Now, pick up your Bibles again if you'd be so kind and turn with me to Matthew because you need to see what Jesus thinks of this story. Matthew chapter 12. It's on page 978 in your Bibles. Jesus says this passage we just looked at, it's all about him, he claims. It's all about him. Page 978. Page 978. And look what Jesus says, chapter 12 and verse 39. Speaking about this passage, he says, chapter 12, verse 39. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says this story is all about him. Just as Jonah descended into the grave, Jesus says it foreshadows his descent down into death for us. But whereas Jonah was being punished for his own sin, Jesus, the blameless son of man, he was being punished for our sin, for our hypocrisy, for our arrogance. So like that fish, the cross, the cross, it, it, is, it is the place of judgment, yes, but also it is the place of redemption. It's the place of life. And baptism is really a picture of this, dying with Christ and then being raised with Christ. When we're teaching the children this, we often get one of those action men. You know action men? They're sort of a bit like Barbie dolls, but for men or boys. And uh, they're sort of that big. And then we get a little Lego man. The action man represents Jesus. The little Lego man represents us. And what we do, we get some sellotape or some super glue and we sort of bind the Lego man to the action man. Which means wherever action man goes... Well, little Legoman has no choice. Little Legoman has to follow. And so it is with us and Christ. We are bound to Christ if we believe in him. Which means as he died and went down into the waters of death, like Jonah, well, so we died. And our sin died with him. That old life is dead. Your old life is dead. But as he comes up victorious, so we are raised with him. We are raised with Christ. We begin a new life. Baptism is, is foreshadowed here in Jonah 2. So can I ask you, have you been baptised yet? Have you done that? If you're believing in Jesus, Jesus commands it. You must be baptised. It's not a, I often 
people get confused about this. It's, it's not a graduation ceremony for the really keen and really sound Christians. It's not that. It's like kindergarten day one. It's the first thing you do, having become a Christian. So have you been baptised? Please come chat with me if that's you. I'd, I'd love to, love to um, baptise you soon, uh, using the, sort of the pool behind us. We must beware hypocrisy, must be baptised into a greater Jonah. But lastly, that means we must cry out with confidence. Cry out with confidence. I think poor old Jonah, he got a lot wrong, didn't he? He got a lot wrong. But he got one thing right. There was, in the midst of distress, in an impossible circumstance, he was sunk right down to the underworld. Even then, he cried out to God, knowing that God would hear him. A few months ago, I think I shared with with you here that that, uh, I heard from an old friend of mine who I sort of grew up with, who's my age, age 31, but he... He, uh, he's been contracted with, with bowel cancer, um, and it is sort of, it's looking, looking terminal. And he's someone who, I, I haven't talked to him in about 15 years, last time I knew him, he was a hard man, big hard man, dabbling with drugs, not someone you want to mess with really. And I've been sort of in contact with him, and I, I had the joy of speaking with him on the phone just, just uh, on Friday. And uh, this guy, <laughs> this guy with, with, with a quivering voice, he told me that he'd found God. He, um, I think he'd found a, a sort of a, a Christian hospice who were looking after him. Some nurses there, I think, shared the gospel with him. And I, I, I quote you his words. I just can't believe how much my heavenly father loves me. He was a guy right down in the pits. And often it takes that, doesn't it? Often it requires us to be in the pits be in a moment of utter humility and only then, only then do we cry out to God and I think this confidence gives us great confidence that even in that moment our prayers are answered I mean I don't know, perhaps you feel in the pit at the moment, a bit like Jonah sinking, weighed down, suffocating under what the issues you're, you're involved with You might think, God, he can't hear me from where I am. You might think, God, he won't listen to me, given the stuff I've done, the things I think, the things I do. And you'd be wrong. You'd be utterly wrong. If the cries of Jonah, deep down under the ocean, if they are heard all the way at the temple in Jerusalem, how much more will your prayers be heard in your situation by a heavenly father with the Lord Jesus Christ standing by him, interceding for us. There is a greater Jonah, risen and ascended, representing you to God. Friends, in your situation, whatever it is, God hears your prayer. And that is a cause for great rejoicing and thanks. So should we do that now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that even in the depths of our sin, the depths of our hypocrisy, you are gracious and merciful to us. We praise you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ, that greater Jonah, who went down into the heart of the earth, who died for us, and then was risen and ascended for us and with us. Father, fix our eyes on him. Renew us in him. 
and help us to cry out with great confidence, whatever our circumstances, knowing that you hear us and love us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.